Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Gillian Linton. I'm the manager of the Student Design Awards here at the RSA, and I'm really pleased to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. Um, if those of you who are watching along would like to join the conversation about the event, you're welcome to do so on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Climate or in our YouTube live chat. I'm looking forward to having the chance to talk today to Anne Karp, uh, Stella Nyamura Mbao and Daze Akaji, and they are joining us to discuss the intersections of gender and environmental justice and the inspiring ideas and action being led by and for women across the world in tackling climate change, but I'll briefly introduce them so that you get to know them a bit before we get started. Um, so Anne Karp is a sociologist and award-winning journalist, as well as a professor of life writing and culture at London Metropolitan University. He's the author of several books, including the acclaimed family memoir, The War After Living with the Holocaust, and her latest, which is the one we'll actually be discussing today, is called How Women Can Save the Planet. Um, not to give too much away, but it is an inspiring call to action that unpicks the different ways climate change compounds gender injustice, how women all over the world are taking action to protect the planet and fight for their emancipation. And I'm really looking forward to delving into some of the trickier parts of some of those conversations. Um, and we're also joined by um, Dei Zagashi, who is a climate justice activist, political candidate and university student doing it all. She's worked with major NGOs, leading charities and grassroots change makers around the world. And uh, in 2019, Days was the youngest candidate to stand in the EU parliamentary elections. And she has strong ties with the um, grassroots campaigning organization, Extinction Rebellion. Uh, finally, but last but not least, we've got Stella Nyamura Mbao, who is the founder and CEO of Loaboa Kind, an initiative that forms coalitions between climate activists and organizations across Africa. She holds a PhD in technology and specializes in climate resilience, and she joins us today from Nairobi. So Anne, Stella, Days, thank you all for joining us. Really great to have you. Um, in terms of kicking things off, and as the author of the book that we're discussing today, I thought it might be good to start off with you. Um, and I wanted to caveat for those of you who are perhaps having questions about the title, Anne is very clear from the offset that, and throughout the rest of the book, that despite the name, she does not believe it is the sole responsibility of women to tackle climate change. So we can kind of dispel that straight away. Um, but you do argue that um, you believe there's an in inextricable relationship between gender and climate justice, and that it isn't an either or, and really they're urgent side-by-side -side issues that we actually need to be looking at at the same time as we try and um, get deeper and, and, and kind of un unpick them. And so I thought it might be useful to kind of kick off the discussion if you could outline for us some of the findings that you noted as you started to explore that relationship. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Gillian. Yes, I'm very glad you made that point because I have a horror of people, particularly women, thinking, oh, yes, I've got a list. I've got to do the cooking, the cleaning, um, the shopping, the childcare. Oh, and yes, mustn't forget to fix the planet at the end of that. Um, so, no, that isn't what I what I had in mind. Yes. I, so uh, my book is really based on a, a, a wealth of climate research by um, non-governmental organizations, charities, but also a fabulous cohort of feminist climate researchers uh, and scholars to whom I am deeply indebted and whose work I find very exciting. And um, what the consensus of all of that is, is uh, first of all, that women are affected by the climate crisis 
in many distinctive ways, particularly women of color, particularly women in the global south. Everything from um, the impact of uh, climate-induced disasters where women are 14 times more likely to die than men, or um, climate violence, which emerges, and, and let, let me just make a little caveat. I'm not talking about chromosomes here or biology. I'm talking about gender and gendered roles, I, masculinity and fe femininity, um, and those roles that we are brought up in. So for example, climate violence, which has come uh, in the global south, but also in, the, in, in uh, rich countries as well, where, for example, after bushfires, where men feel that they have not been able to protect and defend their families in the way that they have been brought up feeling as part of, uh, of the role of a man and, 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 and what masculinity is, and therefore they turn to violence. So there's a, you know, I give, I give two chapters of examples of the impact of um, uh, the distinctive impact of the climate crisis on women. But what's also the fact is that the causes of the climate crisis are gendered. Um, that uh, the, the fossil fuel companies are dominated by men, by white men. The insurance companies, the banks that fund fossil fuel extraction are dominated by men. Even in terms of consumption, many more meat than women, men drive more cars than women. But there's this thing that happens, this process that I call blame the dame, where the responsibility is shifted from men onto women. So a really major part of the climate debate has been about overpopulation, and which implicitly blames women for having uh, too many babies. And it's interesting that those countries in sub-Saharan Africa where the uh, population rate is highest and women are having more babies than other countries, have the smallest carbon footprint and do less uh, to emit uh, carbon than, than the countries in the global north. So it, it, it's a distraction. Um, and then there's the pressure on women as what I call shoppers in chief. You know, we should all be shopping around, trying to buy green, um, eat green, um, uh, wear green and dye green. So it, this, this has been called the um, privatization of responsibility and the feminization of responsibility. And so the, in a whole variety of ways, women have been held responsible for a crisis that they have done, we have done, least to create. Um, and I, I'm not talking about women generically because of course there are enormous differences between women. Uh, a white woman in the global north like me who is employed and middle-class, my consumption um, patterns are likely to be much more like uh, a man. Um, so, you know, we're talking about the intersection of gender, class, and race here, as well as disability and other things. So it's, um, it's, it's, you know, let's not oversimplify, but the fact of the matter is that gender has been left out of the public debate. And really I wrote this book um, to try and put it back in. 
No, that that is a brilliant kind of intro into so many of the themes that I'd love to pick up on. And I think actually just to jump off the last bit that you just spoke to um, is something that I found really interesting that you kind of actually break down quite a bit in the book is being very careful not to to collapse everything down to a category of just a single a woman, um, but rather really breaking down these other intersections that you've just described. And I was just wondering, as two people who are featured in the book, Stella and Days, whether you could um, speak a little bit to your experiences um, of the work that you're leading in your different spaces and how that maybe looks different to the different experiences people may, may be aware of kind of listening to this perhaps in London or listening to this in another city. Um, what, what kind of is the angle that you, um, you have taken in your work, Stella, maybe first, and then, and then we'll pop over to Dave. Um, hi, hi everyone. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I love the book very much. Um, uh, it's easy to read. I have ADD, so I very easily could switch off a book depending on the design. So it was very easy to read. Um, I thought that that was important for me to say. There's something that Anne just mentioned about population and um, there's a statistic by Oxfam, uh, the 1% in the Global North uh, emitting I think it was 10% emit about 50% of emissions and 50% in the global south emit about 7% of emissions. And to talk about population in the sense that the south has to limit um, control birth rates uh, is really, as she was saying, misplaced. Um, yeah, a friend of mine was joking. If you just took out the 1%, somehow wipe them out. <laughs> would have solved the problem. Uh, yeah, so um, I think for me, just the idea, because I'm into adaptation, so when I look at that, it means uh, focusing on the most vulnerable people. And when you're looking at the most vulnerable people, um, there's the urban areas, uh, there's a specific vulnerability that there is in urban spaces and then the coastal areas, and then we come to the farmers. Um, and when you go to the rural areas, you look at farmers, women is a specific, it's very different. And actually in some projects that I have spoken to a couple of people who are working with sponsoring projects here, and they talk about how men have, I think it's culturally, uh, it's a happening that is cultural. So men have this leadership role in when they're organizing workshops uh, with leadership to do with, it's to do with permaculture and teaching that at the grassroots. And um, so women aren't, don't have access to this, to these leadership roles. So when these sponsoring uh, organizations come asking questions, how many women do you have involved? How many youth are you involving? Uh, so they feel the need of, we need to place, we need to create positions for these, uh, a couple of women and the youth. And when they do, these women aren't really given any responsibilities. It's just, you see them there, but they're not really doing anything. And uh, you question, you push further for more information and you discover that um, what they what they are doing is the seed um, collecting, stuff like that, not really running the classes or given the capacity to do that. Um, 
uh, at a leadership uh, level. So it it is, you see it everywhere here, even in urban places. It's just that in the rural areas, it's more pronounced, but it's, 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 um, it's within the fabric of, I would say, being Kenyan. It's, yeah, women are in the kitchen um, and it's very difficult, therefore, to balance work and and home. And there's so much pressure to maintain that uh, balance so that it's not really happening. And obviously that has negative repercussions. Um, yeah, so from my perspective, yes, I see it. Back to you. No, I that that's such an interesting kind of anecdote that really aligns with some of the the multiple stories that were woven through the book where you know you implement a program and if you don't actually spend the time to think about the gender dynamics of how that plays out then actually you end up replicating the systems that are already there. Um, Days, I saw you nodding along at quite a few points did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think that even from my own life story, I'm one of these people who fits into most marginalized groups. I'm a black, I'm a woman, I have learning disabilities, I'm queer. And it's like through this experience, I've been able to find ways to empathize with lots of people's different experiences. Um, and when we fight climate, we have to not forget that this was um, like the climate crisis is caused, at least in my opinion, by the way that we've learned how to treat each other. And I think it stems right back to things like colonialism of where we learn how to abuse each other and then we learn how to abuse the land in turn. But what's happening is the land saying we're being bad tenants and it's gonna kick us out if we don't <laughs> change our ways. Um, and I think it's really interesting, especially when you talk about um, the idea of overpopulation, cause it is a myth. Um, it's to try and put blame on groups that are previous already marginalized and say this is your this is your burden to bear when this is just unrealistic and it puts um, a really odd angle in the like the um the global north basically saying um now we need to find ways to um control women's bodies in the global south um which is extremely problematic and it it's a deterrent for us to not look at the way that we consume and our material economy and just blame it on um the people who notoriously are blamed for everything um so i think there is like a real um kind of like link between all of like the basically the social ill that we face and the climate crisis and i think by like looking Looking at, um, looking at it in this way, we can actually get to the root causes of a lot of the issues that we face and not only for the climate, but for ourselves as well. No, that's, that's such a great point. And I think something that we're, I'm, I'm hearing threaded throughout all of those answers there is kind of this, um, this, yeah, this feeling of who is responsible versus who is being asked to make changes to their lifestyles. And I do think like, it's quite interesting having this discussion maybe also in this moment where I think a lot of people came into the past year or so saying, you know, disaster doesn't discriminate. We're all in this together, trying to battle COVID-19 and the crises that come with it. And it's revealed as many have said before that disaster doesn't discriminate, but actually it really does because it actually just reveals the existing inequalities and exposes certain people and certain groups to the worst effects and consequences. And I do wonder with kind of the conversations people are having about the multiple kind of reckonings this year, as you mentioned, of colonialism and state violence and patriarchy, do we feel that we're in a better position now to demand and implement some of these changes than we were a few years ago? 
Oh, I mean, I certainly feel that this is a real moment. Um, and, um, I, you know, one of my interviewees um, in, in the US said, this isn't a pandemic, it's a syndemic, where, you know, three pandemics have come together. And one is COVID, um, and the other is the climate crisis, and the other is racism. Uh, and with with Black Lives Matter and and George Floyd's death, and they are all intertwined, um, and they're all pointing to the same thing. And and uh, I think you're quite right to identify a shift in consciousness that's happened over this past year. And you really can't say anymore um, about COVID. We're all in it together. Um, you know that that just won't wash anymore. And I, I think and I hope that the same is beginning to happen with the climate crisis. There's begun to be an understanding that, um, you know, you can't make a kind of universalizing comment like that anymore because it conceals really important differences, um, not just about um, the uh, effects of the climate crisis, but also the causes. Yeah, and I think... Uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> One thing that that kind of strikes me, and maybe Stella, you can you can speak to this, is that we're we're having this experience where the science has created these vaccines that can speak to to some solutions potentially to to get us on on the right track with with this one pandemic. Um, but I do wonder, um, have you had similar experiences where there are some technical solutions that are being developed for climate change, and and how is that interacting with kind of political will and 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 um, consensus building with the organizations you work with? Um, I think when we think politically, that is so complicated because let's just think regionally for a minute. Uh, the EU has Agenda 2063, um, and that to me is so far out um, to think that this region is the most vulnerable and to have targets so far out, it should be 2010. Um, so it's really not understanding uh, the issues, which means there's less urgency, uh, which means more suffering and more people um, uh, suffering. So yeah, when you include that polit political aspect to this, it really, uh, yeah, the, the context is not, doesn't fit. Um, so people are more like the activists or the NGOs. It's, it's sort of feels isolated at the moment. The government in Kenya is trying, I would say, um, because I think we were among the first to submit our NDCs and um, uh, the focus on in, uh, limiting the amount of emissions, cutting emissions is still there. I think we were cutting about 32%. Uh, I, I don't think that's the focus. Um, the focus should be more adaptation and building resilience. So you see, when you don't really understand where you stand in that global conversation, you're not able to inform what is important for you and your people and your region um, in a way that you know, reduces the suffering. So I think that would be what I would say about that. Yeah. No, that that completely makes sense. It's it's potentially working towards someone else's agenda, which actually isn't the the point of most import for for the people in your country or in your region. 
And I know actually, Days, you stood to be a member of European Parliament back in 2019 elections. What was your kind of experience of engaging with the kind of more formal political process? I think it's very much the lack of urgency and lack of understanding that this is a crisis. Um, that's the biggest issue with politics is that they don't understand this is life and death. Um, they kind of see it as like, oh, it would be a nicety to have nature like us. <laughs> it would be a nicety to have stable weather and clean air and clean water. We're not understanding these things are the only reasons we exist and we can continue to live in the way that we are. Um, so that's my biggest issue with politics is that it kind of champions short term thinking with these really quick and easy elections of where every four years they do nothing in the two years between and then at the end they go okay let's do something for the media to get us votes and they don't think long term and this is where we just need to start thinking about what our political system should look like and acknowledge that we live in many sham democracies and the UK being one of them we need to acknowledge that we need to change the system that we live within and actually prioritize long-term thinking and future generations as stakeholders within our society we need people who can champion the future societies and making sure that no harm is done as like the core part and the fundamental part of fighting the climate crisis is to stop harm immediately. Um, we need people to start recognizing this and especially living in the global north, we need to recognize the burden of this issue that we have created almost entirely by ourselves. Uh, we need to realize that we aren't gonna be waiting for 2050. We should be aiming for 2025. We should be being ambitious with our goals and aiming for the impossible, in, especially when we realize the burden of this issue is, is ours to hold. I think that's exactly right. And I think that the IPCC um, 2018 report really crystallized it for a lot of young people in general, young people of whatever gender, but also in particular for, for women. And it gave it because it, it brought it into their lifetime. They thought, OK, uh, because, you know, it talks about the, the need for urgent action by 2030. And they thought, hold on a minute, that's 12 years time and they added 12 years onto their their present age and they thought my god where is my future going um so i think that that created an enormous sense of urgency and the beginnings i mean for some people a lot of other people have been onto it for a very long time of the need for really deep systemic change i mean just to pick up on what days said um somebody made the analogy that it's like a rich person going into a restaurant, having a slap up meal and coming outside and there's a, 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 someone begging outside and tossing the bill to them and say, you pay. Um, and, you know, so I think that, that there has been a shift in consciousness. But what I would say is, and this is also picking up Stella's point, that if you don't have an understanding of what, and Daisy's point, what in the present system has caused this, then you are just going to create the same problems with your solutions. I mean, Audre Lorde put it perfectly, the American poet. She said, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. And if you look at some of the suggestions for tackling the climate crisis, um, the, the geoengineering ones, mostly, not, not exclusively, but mostly, um, dreamt up by men. I mean, they are ridiculous. You know, um, pumping um, sulfates uh, into the, 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 the 
um, the poles to refreeze the poles or flying robots to protect to protect um, us from the sun. And a lot of these are taken very seriously. I mean, I, I give some examples in my book of some that the uh, Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge are taking seriously. And they are absurd technological fixes that don't do anything. In fact, that's what they're designed. They're designed not to disturb fossil fuel extraction, not to, desert, not to disturb the existing power relations between the global north and south, between men and women, rich and poor, able-bodied and people with disabilities, the whole list of inequalities. It's how can we find a solution that leaves all of that in place, but we know that we've got to do something about the climate. And it's ridiculous. It's just either leaving it as bad as it is or compounding it. Yeah, and I think that's such that's such a, a prescient point that comes out in the book is that it does feel like some of these technological fixes, as you call them, are really just being put in place to allow us to continue the behavior we're doing instead of realizing that actually, and this is something you kind of address, what we maybe need to be doing is actually completely overhauling our economy and realizing that the way that we've structured our societies are set up to continue down this path. And um, it is something you do discuss a little bit in, in there. You, you reference some other people who are doing this work around um, a Green New Deal for women or, or an idea of specifically restructuring an economy like the donut economics model. And um, I just wondered, um, do you think that, that some of the iterations that have come out so far, I think you've, you've maybe kind of critiqued them for not actually considering enough about the question of gender. And I just wonder, how do, you, how, how do you think you can make that more central in some of these big economic overhauls? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, for example, the Green New Deal proposed by um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, you know, great. I mean, I think she's fabulous and I'm, you know, I, I love her, but I mean, boy, was it thin on gender. Um, and, you know, it, 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 you know, gender is subsumed under vulnerable people. So you get, you know, women as victims again. Um, but what is beginning to happen, and I find this really exciting, is that all kinds of um, women's groups and feminist groups are proposing uh, Green New Deals for women, feminist Green New Deals. So we do, the Women's Environment and Development Organization in the US have proposed one. And the one that really excites me is one that's going to be launched at COP26 this year, which is um, created by two groups. There are all these W groups, of WEN and Women's Budget Groups. So the Women's Environmental Network and Women's Budget Group, two British groups. And um, the way that this differs from any other idea of the Green New Deal and what makes it so salient, and relevant in the time of COVID is the focus on care and the care economy. And the Women's Budget Group is a group of uh, feminist economists um, who've got together and they have worked out because you, you hear all the time now, build back better. It's become such a cliche. And these politicians, they love to be seen in their hard hats and their high-vis jackets. And when they talk about um, build back be better, what they're talking about mostly is the physical infrastructure. So jobs in industry, uh, manufacturing, um, construction. Now, most of those jobs at the moment um, are held by men. And if you just replace them with slightly greener versions, you're not going to do anything to change the gendered uh, composition of the workforce. 
Um, what the Women's Budget Group did was they compared 1% of GDP, gross domestic product, invested in construction um, or industry, and 1% in what they call the care economy. So jobs, as we've seen with COVID, that are the most vital, the frontline staff, nursing, social work, um, you know, porters, supermarket workers, all the kind of, you know, care jobs. And they found that 1% invested in the care economy produced nearly three times as many jobs, and they were 30% less polluting. So in other words, Care jobs are green jobs. Now, if you put care at the heart of, um, of a, 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 a new economy and you give people, as the Women's Budget Group say, time to care and time away from care, properly paid, the economy at a stroke looks completely different. And I mean, I know that days in her own work within Extinction Rebe Rebellion is foregrounding care. I mean, Days, what, what do you say to this? Yeah, so I do work in regenerative cultures uh, work, which basically talks about how we need to recognize the link between the self, our communities and our planet and how if we base love care um, and, and use that as the grounds for every action we take, especially when it comes to policy decisions, our world will look very different. Um, and I think the economy is a very amazing place to start looking at how we can create regenerative and well-being economies that pushes away from the idea of mass growth at any cost, but focuses on how we can make human life flourish and how we can make any living, including the earth, by the way, because earth is living and thriving, <laughs> how we can make that um, thrive and flourish just by our economy. I think care and love is a really core cool part of anything we should be doing. And the roots of every action we take is the most important part of it. Yeah, and I, I wonder, Stella, do you feel like there, there are some initiatives like that in Kenya at the moment that are that are kind of starting in the way that Days has described? Um, I, I would start with XR itself. We have uh, XR Kenya um, in the group. Um, yeah, so they talk about this regenerative culture. Um, and I heard about it the first time when COVID set in. Um, and this is the time people were staying home. Uh, you're not seeing many people, you're not going out, people are getting depressed and all of that, so many changes. Um, and it helps uh, when you start to think about care for yourself and then for other people. Um, yeah, so here also, I think when you think about regenerative um, culture or regeneration, um, I think of farmers because that's like, it's a really huge population in Africa and Kenya. Um, and the thing that I've seen, uh, especially in Eastern Africa, is this going into permaculture, agroecology, agricultural practices that are really good for the soil and for the food. I heard very recently that our food that we eat today, as many people are going vegan, I'm also vegan, but uh, it, it was a bit startling. Um, I think rice specifically is about 30% less nutritious than about 40 years ago. So our food itself, as natural as you can, you could grow it, is less nutritious than food uh, a long time ago. So yeah, it's important that we regenerate the soil. Um, 
that we go into this also syntropic agroforestry, something I heard very recently, um, making sure that if our soils are healthy, then we get healthy food and uh, yeah, healthy communities and because malnutrition is a big problem in Africa. Yeah. And I think that the, the, uh, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book is um, the, how gendered um, farming and agriculture is. I mean, women play a vital part in fi farming around the world, but have very little ownership of, of the land. Um, and um, in uh, uh, increasingly, multinational companies are trying to patent seeds uh, that uh, limit access to them and that you have to pay for. And this is part of the commons, a kind of a shared resource that should be available for everyone, not to make uh, uh, huge companies, um, even huger profits. Um, so I think that's very important. And I do give some examples of um, projects that uh, really understand the need to build in gender. And, you know, so you're, you're, doing something about farming or there's a wonderful one in in india and in gujarat called the bunguru which is a rainwater management system because they have just like um uh stella told me about india uh, in her interview in the book she she describes how uh, 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 farmers are beset first of all by flooding and then by drought and it's quite hard to fit these together as you said in your interview um, Stella and the same problem is in India and they've got this project that is targeted at the lowest caste women and they train them in the use of this rainwater management system so that, the, that they can um, collect the rainwater when and, and prevent flooding, but then use it at times of drought. And they, um, through this project, these women then they own the system, they train other women, and they've now been given land rights. And then, of course, that changes everything. That gives them confidence. That raises their social status. And so you can see that one project, which is a technological project in a way, but not a technological fix, because it really understands the social relationships and the gendered inequalities of power and builds that in and has managed to change, I think it's 20,000 women's lives already. So, you know, there are extraordinary things. I mean, I, I, I want to stress that this is a, a hopeful book, in spite of the fact that we are talking about something so desperately uh, dangerous and urgent and in many ways depressing. There are also so many exciting, interesting things happening that give us hope. And I am uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite heavy on the pessimist scale usually, but even I feel hope in this. That is such a perfect transition because I was thinking that it, it might be nice to have a bit of a discussion of, of areas where we see see some hope, see some joy, because um, I think that is a huge critique of climate texts and climate content is this kind of overwhelmingly negative view, focusing on the failures, focusing on the fact that we're not going to make it if we, if we don't do it and can kind of make people turn off effectively. And I was wondering, um, and feel free to jump in whoever would like to first, Stella with your work with Loa Boa or Days with XR or other, other groups you're part of, like is there, is there maybe a nugget or a, a story that really gives you a bit of hope as, as you've been doing that work? I'll, just, I'll let Days go first. <laughs> 
I think there's so much to be hopeful for. I remember there's this, um, I have a Guardian article and there's this line about me being a hopeless romantic that everyone loves because that's how I feel about the climate. There is something that gives me this gritty optimism knowing that this world is going to be better. And I think for me, what really gives me hope is just, it's, it's looking outside and looking at the world that we've created. And although there's so many issues, can we lie and say we've never experienced joy and happiness in it? Can we lie and say that we've never experienced the warmth of others and the warmth of nature and the caring love she has for us? You know, and this is this is when things are bad. Imagine when things are good, you know? <laughs> that's gonna be when all of us are gonna be like, wow. <laughs> and that's the world that I aim for. And I think especially working with younger kids, like I work with, I think the youngest I've worked with is like four years old and hearing their ideas of the future they come into the space knowing the issues and knowing we have a problem on our hands that we need to solve urgently but also having such hope and such wide imagination of what the world can be like and what it should look like and being around them it really fills you with all sorts of hope now i wish i let her go after me um <laughs> Uh, so I, I struggle to be optimistic, um, but I think that turnaround with COVID, that gives me hope, just seeing how fast we could change things. Um, like someone, I don't remember the name, an interviewee in the book, who said that she sort of wishes um, that one of the tipping points, something would happen so drastic, so that we know that it's here, so that we just go on ahead and do this, what we're supposed to do. Because I feel like that would be the trigger, which is waiting for something really huge to happen, an event, all of a sudden. This stuff that is sort of gradual doesn't communicate maybe to the human brain. I don't know what's happening there. But yeah, uh, just taking to, to optimism, I think um, we, we can do it just from the experience with COVID. Yeah. Uh, Stella, I, I, I've had over the years many conversations with a friend of mine, the first person who ever really talked to me about the climate crisis. So I've been having conversations with him for about 20 years. And he always says, we've got to tell people how absolutely terrible things are and that and really um, it's 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 too late. And I keep saying, but if you tell people that they're not going to they might think, well, we're going to go under, we might as well go under, you know, um, driving our swish cars and flying, those of us who can do those kinds of things. I said, human, pe human beings can't live without hope. I mean, I feel hope because of the, you know, the first of all, the indigenous groups and particularly the indigenous women in the global south, you know, like the Warani women in Ecuador who took their government to court to prevent them drilling on their ancestral lands, um, drilling for oil in the Amazon and won. And they are becoming more and more active, those groups. But really the main um, source of hope for me is the, the women I interviewed uh, in my book. Um, and um, I interviewed uh, over 20 women, but they're, the, they're eight interviews that I run at length in between each chapters, including Days and Stella. 
And really, I just take my hat off to them. They are all working in completely different ways. I mean, Stella's a scientist, Daisy's in exile. They're all doing different things, but they are doing it so fully, so creatively, and and with, with such hope that really it, it's catching. I mean, hope is catchy, just like despair is catching. And I feel that um, these women have, have given me hope where I might have been more tended towards despair. No, and I, I actually was going to say that from reading the book, I also come potentially a bit, a bit from the Stella side. I feel quite um, pessimistic quite a lot of the time. Because, as you say, there have been people working on this issue for such a long time, indigenous groups fighting for land rights, fighting for the ability to protect their lands and not being able to, to, to actually get purchased there and not being able to, to really get people behind their movements or get the support they needed from, from governments and nations across the globe. And I did actually find that in the way that the book is structured, interspersing these interviews with these chapters was actually extremely extremely effective for making you feel there was a change possible because you think oh all of these people and all of these places are working this hard surely I am so I'm so glad about that because I also feel I hope that it's also realistic because I think we mustn't underestimate the forces ranged against us um, because you know we can all talk fluent green now particularly the fossil fuel companies and their greenwashing efforts are have accelerated and amplified because now they know they've got to parade themselves as green um and um they are they play dirty they really play dirty and sometimes i feel like what Dave says it's like those images of of you know people going up to um to police in demos with a rose or a flower, you know, can can a bit of love and, and, and you know, joy fight that. But I do believe that more and more um, uh, women, but also we need allies, you know, this, you know, days is like all these people in one as she described, but, you know, we need allies, the LGBTQI plus community, people with disabilities, um, uh, obviously people with with color and and men you know there are uh, men involved in these movements who understand this and are working towards this and we need a coalition you know women cannot do it on our own we shouldn't have to do it on our own but i think if enough people become ranged together and demand it then i think it it will have to happen well on that note quite a hopeful one as well I'm afraid that is all we've got time for today. But Anne, Stella, Days, it's been so wonderful to be able to dig a bit deeper. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, share your insights on, on how you're all working to kind of push these issues forward and, and to really think through climate and gender justice kind of as it's happening all over the world. Um, and I do, I do feel like it's been a source of hope for me and hopefully for those who will be watching as well. For those of you watching, I hope our conversation has given you some things to think about. And if you're interested in learning more, Anne's book, How Women Can Save the Planet, which features Stella, Days, and lots of other inspiring women making change in their communities, you can find that. And I really do encourage you to read it in our sidebar chat, where you can get a bit more information on how to get a copy or on our RSA event social media. All that's left for me is to say thank you again to Anne Karp, Stella Nyamura Mbao, and Days Agaji. Thank you all for watching. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.